Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. On today's episode, we'll hear from a man who led Mossad, Israel's national intelligence agency, and has quite a lot to say about Iran, the U.S.-Israel relationship, Israel's ties with China, and the potential for peace in our region. But our guest Ephraim Alevi is also here to offer a stark warning that goes way beyond our little corner of the world. Hello, Ephraim Alevi. Hi. Great to have you here with us. It's a pleasure. A director of Mossad from 1998 to 2002, and you've done many other things uh, along the years in the Israeli intelligence community and foreign service. I want to talk to you today, first of all, about something much more recent, an article that we at Haaretz were lucky to publish, and that you wrote for us, about a book that predicts a very troubling future potential development in the year 2034. Tell us a bit about this book and why you chose to write about it for Haaretz. Now, this is a book which was published in the United States, of course. It was written by two people, uh, Admiral Stavridis, the former uh, Supreme Commander of NATO, four-star admiral, a person who had a very, very distinguished career, a man of uh, extreme importance to the uh, history of uh, the American defense and security establishment. And the second is Elliot Ackerman, who uh, commanded a long series of uh, activities under the CIA and other uh, elements in the American uh, uh, secret uh, intelligence activities, a person with a, uh, a very, very distinguished uh, track record, which is not uh, being exposed to the public. And the title that we gave to your uh, review article on the book was the, the Nightmare World War III scenario that could soon become reality. What was so troubling for you when you read that book and that led you to write about it for us? Let me begin by saying that this is a novel. It's a novel uh, which deals with uh, human beings. There are characters in this book. Uh, they are fictitious characters, but they are characters who play roles in a... Uh, scenario which uh, develops uh, throughout the book and ends uh, in a war between China and the United States in uh, 2034. This o is only 13 years away. It might sound far off to our uh, <laughs> listeners, but it's uh, only, not that far. It's only 13 years away, but my guess is that if such a scenario or a similar scenario develops in the years to come, we may see uh, elements of it well before 2034, and we'll talk about that a little later. What interested me here was that this was a book which uh, dealt with the human beings and their private problems alongside the uh, developing uh, uh, events which take place, most of them events that were not pre-planned. In other words, a series of events which uh, came about through mistakes people made or false estimates people made, and uh, suddenly this ended in a matter which was an international tragedy, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. And I thought that this is something which people should be aware of because, as I said, it's a fictitious book. 
but it's a book which the long string of people in the United States, including a man for whom I have a lot of respect because I knew him personally, Robert Gates, who headed both the CIA and was also Secretary of Defense, recommends this book in a manner which is not the manner of a cool and uh, collected person, but uh, a person who really believes that we might have to face something similar to that in the years to come. Before we get into the issues themselves that we want to talk about and are related to, to, to the article that you yeah. published, I, I must ask, you know, when I read a book that involves spies and uh, superpower competition and uh, abductions and wars and nuclear threats, I read it as a journalist. Most of the time that kind of uh, fiction will uh, get me uh, and I will be gripped, you know, and turn the pages. But what do you feel as a former head of Mossad? You know this world from the inside. When you read it, do you think, ah, this is exaggerated? Not talking specifically about this book, but the, the genre in general. Uh, can a former spy chief enjoy a spy thriller? Well, uh, I won't reveal uh, a terrible secret by saying that I've always read the books of uh, Le Carre. Uh, not because uh, they, like this book, are also fiction, but they also... Uh, To a large extent, they uh, reveal the basics of the situation in which the world is in at a given moment. In other words, this is a book which shows you that what you might be seeing at the moment is something very similar to what you might be seeing in the future as it is in the book. Moving from fiction to the news of the day, as we are meeting here at our uh, studio in the Haaretz headquarters to record this podcast, uh, our top headline today is a report by Amos Arel, our national security analyst, that there is concern in Israel regarding how much the Biden administration is prioritizing the Iranian issue, how much pressure the administration is putting on <coughs> Iran to return to nuclear talks. Do you see... A nuclear agreement with Iran revised or similar to the one that was signed in 2015 as the likeliest possibility at the moment? Well, for several years now, I have uh, followed and also reiterated my views in public that the uh, element of negotiating with Iran should not be discarded. I was always of the opinion that you have to try and dialogue with the worst of your enemies and And you have to find the ways of influencing them better to understand them and also to allow them better to understand you. And I have always thought that it was a grave mistake of the former Prime Minister Netanyahu to pressure the President of the United States, Donald Trump, to uh, leave the agreement, to uh, more or less cancel the United States uh, involvement in this aspect of the relationship with Iran. I thought it was a big mistake. And the fact of the matter is, if we look at the events which took place from the dramatic uh, event that uh, Trump led in uh, exiting from the agreement on behalf of the United States, the situation versus Iran, it has become all that much worse. So in retrospect, it looks like what Netanyahu and Trump did, The decision to withdraw from the JCPOA did not push Iran further away from the bomb, maybe actually closer to it. Yes, indeed, yes. And this notwithstanding, not only uh, 
the uh, departure from the treaty, but also a, a long string of activities which took place, a long uh, string of uh, operations carried out by the Mossad as well, which have become uh, public knowledge and the involvement of Mossad has become public knowledge in this. And I thought that this was in itself a mistake of uh, publicizing this. And uh, I'd be happy to elaborate on that if you wish so. You think it was a political issue? No, I think that it was an attempt to shame the Iranians into taking a different position. It was intended to uh, inflame their feelings. It was intended to uh, give them a sense of uh, failure in all that they were doing. And uh, paradoxically, uh, what it did was that despite the fact that one of their uh, archives were uh, stolen in Toto and were publicized at big uh, event that the Prime Minister of the time held in the Ministry of Defense yeah, showing big show showing it this yes this did not uh, deter the Iranians on the contrary and the fact that the uh, chief scientist of the project was also uh, led to a better world by an operation of the Mossad uh, which the uh, Mossad has taken uh, credit for and The net result of this has been negative. The fact of the matter is that uh, Israel is now saying that uh, Iran has never before been as close to a uh, breakthrough into a nuclear uh, mode is testimony to the fact that the entire uh, policy of the former government was a dismal failure. It was an unfortunate failure and it might be an historic failure. Netanyahu was also prime minister when you were appointed. the chief of Mossad in 1998. Uh, back then, when you were talking with him about the Iranian issue, uh, were you on the same page regarding the strategy, the level of threat that this poses to Israel? I didn't uh, have a deep talks with Netanyahu on this subject. It was a, uh, one of the highest uh, subjects on our uh, list of uh, priorities. We carried out a lot of activities, intelligence activities at the time, which I will not uh, elaborate. And uh, I, of course, reported from time to time on operations which took place. And there were certain operations for which I sought his uh, approval specifically. But I did not enter into a substantial discussion with him on this subject. What we were involved in at the time was more the uh, involvement of uh, Russia in the uh, uh, nuclear program of the uh, Iranians, the Boucher uh, reactor. What we were very concerned was with was the involvement of the Chinese in these activities. And these were more uh, cardinal to what we were discussing at the time. That was the situation uh, after uh, he left uh, office in, originally in 1999 and of course when uh, uh, Ehud Barak came in after him and Sharon after Ehud Barak uh, the subject uh, rose in the list of uh, the essential elements of information the EEI as it's called and uh, became more central and uh, engaged more and more of our capabilities at the expense of other subjects of course. The 2015 agreement, the one that Trump withdrew from uh, with Netanyahu's strong encouragement, how effective was it in your view in pushing back the Iranian nuclear program? And would you like to see it reinstated? 
before I answer that question, I'd like to uh, tell the listeners about an event uh, which I attended, which took place in 2015, just a few days before the talks began in Geneva. I was attending a uh, what they call the Track 2 uh, kind of activities, in which people uh, from uh, various walks of life meet together in a non-official capacity, many people who are former officials, and uh, sometimes discuss subjects which are on the agenda and can be discussed in a, a less formal way and a freer way. We were then in Istanbul at a meeting of what is called the Pagwash Conference. And the Pagwash Conference is a Pagwash uh, event. Pagwash is the name of a small little village in Canada where the first meeting took place. Ultimately, the Pagwash Conference uh, received a Nobel Prize for Peace and the founder, Dr. Joseph Rotlewit, a famous Jew, if I may say, was uh, the person who also received a personal Nobel Prize. That meeting, uh, by pure uh, coincidence, had the opportunity to uh, hear a presentation by the then uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Zarif, who was the Foreign Affairs uh, Minister of the previous government. And he led the negotiations yes. uh, in uh, Geneva. And he came in and uh, he spoke about the fact that we now live in a global village, that uh, the economics of one country depend on the others, the social conditions of uh, people in one country depend on the others. And he said, security is a global matter. Your peace is my peace. My peace is your peace. We have to find ways and means of uh, dealing with these issues as if defense is also a matter of the global village. And I felt very, very um, encouraged by uh, this statement. Actually, I was thinking to myself that I was uh, present at the historical event of uh, a change of policy on the heart of the uh, Iranian uh, government and the Iranian leadership. And um, there was time for questions at the end of the uh, meeting. Uh, I did not uh, think that it was a wise thing to get up and uh, identify myself and to ask a question that could have been deemed to be uh, too provocative even for me. But I asked a friend to uh, pose a, a question which would uh, relate to Israel's uh, concerns and other concerns. And uh, he uh, agreed, and he got up and said, uh, Mr. Minister, what you've been saying has been extremely important and of great interest. Is there anything you could say that could allay the fears and concerns of various countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, like Israel, and I think he mentioned one other country, mm -hmm. who feel a little concerned about this? But having said what you've said, we'd be very interested to hear what you had to say. Well, the minister began answering questions, and this question at the end of his list, apparently. And when he got to this question, he looked at his watch and he said, oh, I'm late, I have to leave you. <laughs> and he left, and he left us without an answer. I think that um, the negotiations were tough negotiations. I think uh, the world did not get everything that it was interested in. From the Iranian side. From the Iranian side, no. I think uh, concessions were made, but I think a, an agreement was better than a non-agreement. And I thought that it would also in time, if it was done in the proper way, could lead 
to the beginning of secret dialogues and secret contacts and secret, uh, shall we say, uh, feelers put out by one or another of the people concerned. And I can say that from uh, experience I was involved in, in a totally different issue, which I will not mention this evening, the feelers which were put out at the Pugwash meeting led to a very uh, a significant uh, development in the relations of Israel with a uh, foreign power and led to uh, uh, results which were important to us at the time. And I have always been the uh, promoter of these kind of activities, not as a, uh, shall we say, an alternative to the uh, other method of uh, force and intelligence provocative activities, but uh, as part of the uh, menu that you have in front of you, a menu which allows you to choose sometimes uh, the first item, maybe the last item, maybe something in the middle, and I thought that it was a, a mistake, still think it's a mistake, to... Uh, to take negotiations to, off uh, the menu. To, uh, to take it off the menu, to uh, restrict yourselves. I think you're causing yourself damage by not trying to uh, revert to this. A few days ago, a few weeks ago, I saw an article of the editor of the Haaretz, uh, Mr. Rufben, and I noted the sentence, a uh, one sentence which I thought would have caused uh, some uh, uh, eyes to raise and eyelids to rise, when he said that uh, not long ago uh, the former prime minister sent out a feeler to try and uh, get uh, some kind of uh, dialogue going or some kind of contact going, but that this uh, feeler was rejected. Well, uh, after you've said for four or five years and you've carried out a massive campaign in the United States to get the President of the United States to leave, I think uh, it's too presumptuous to think that the Iranians would suddenly uh, change policy just because a man like Netanyahu, of all the people on this uh, globe who turn to them, would be deemed to be a proper partner, a desirable partner, I think their immediate action or their immediate reaction would probably be that this is probably some kind of a plot. It's a, some kind of a, a move uh, within the overall policy of discrediting the Iranian regime entirely. Looking today at the u- u- relationship between the United States and Israel, where do you see a bigger potential for a confrontation, for a clash between these two allies? On the Iranian issue or on the Chinese issue, which you also highlighted in your article, and I know you've spoken uh, quite a lot about the, the issue of uh, the United States and how it looks at the relationship between Israel and China. I wouldn't like to uh, compare the two. I think they're, they're two different issues, and uh, as far as Israel is concerned, I think for the moment the Iranian issue takes precedent over the Chinese issue. Uh, this might not be the case Uh, later on uh, in this century. Is that also the view of priorities from Washington in your understanding? No, I think it also could be priorities of Israel. The Chinese have uh, taken steps in recent months which they've never taken before and we could discuss at, uh, at some length at your discretion. But I think that um, the way China has uh, been treating Israel uh, on these issues has undergone a change in recent months. In various matters but I think that the Iranian issue is an issue uh, which is on the front burner 
and it's urgent. And it's urgent, and uh, as I speak, we've had a visitor here, uh, the outgoing uh, Chancellor of Germany, uh, Dr. Merkel, who has been in office for a long, long time, and is also a great friend of Israel. True. And she believed, and she said it openly, that the next few weeks are going to be uh, very, very important and uh, very, maybe even dramatic in terms of how the Iranian issue and uh, how the uh, negotiations will go. And she has expressed herself very, very firmly as being an exponent of negotiations with the Iranians, whether you like them or not, and you can dislike them intensely if you feel like it and if it serves your uh, psychological necessities. But you have to see where your interests lie. And the interests lie in starting a negotiation and starting to talk. And sometimes when you start to talk, you reach points which you, in the past, did not envisage. And then on the Chinese front, it's not on the front burner, but it, it, you're saying things are changing and Israel needs to be aware. Yes. This book, the Stavrizis Ackerman book, does not mention Israel. Uh, it, but it deals with the, the Straits of Hormuz, where Israel has clearly a rising interest. And uh, there have been a lot of uh, uh, reports which have not been substantiated of Israeli activities in the Hormoz uh, Straits in you, recent you, years. You might know something about uh, it. I might know something about it, I might not know something about it, but uh, the Hormoz Straits has always been a matter in which I've taken very, very seriously. Although uh, when I began uh, in the Mossad in the 60s, it was not so. But at a very early stage, I was involved in activities in the uh, Gulf and in the uh, Straits area with uh, countries and with players there. And uh, the Straits are important. They are very, very important. And they're also an indicator. And I repeat what I said before, that it's interesting that the book that I reviewed begins with uh, two incidents, one of them in the Hormoz Straits, when uh, an American pilot is on a mission to test this uh, new capability which has been uh, attached to the aircraft. And uh, what happens is that at a point he loses control of the aircraft and uh, through, I believe, cyber and other uh, capabilities, uh, the uh, aircraft uh, goes under the command of the uh, Iranians and they land the aircraft and they uh, uh, immediately, uh, of course, take the uh, pilot captive. And without giving too many spoilers, where do the Chinese come into that picture? The Chinese come into that picture because this is one of two events which are taking place simultaneously. And at the same time, there's a big event in the uh, South China Sea area in which there is a, a naval confrontation, which I will not detail at the moment, but which is very, very significant and in which, by the way, the American uh, force is uh, commanded by uh, a senior uh, naval officer who is a, a lady and not a gentleman. Well, that by itself is always interesting. And then if we come back to the headlines of today, and you mentioned the South China Sea and, uh, and China showing aggression towards some of its neighbors, that sounds a lot like the headlines coming right now out of Taiwan. Precisely so. I think the last week has been a, a very uh, important week in the development of the relations between uh, China and the United States. Taiwan uh, has the support of the United States, as we all know. China claims the right 
to uh, see uh, Taiwan as part of uh, uh, the uh, Chinese country. They do not uh, recognize Taiwan independence, and they carried out a series of uh, of air uh, appearances, shall we say, um, in, air, incursions, uh, maybe. Uh, not an incursion. They didn't. Uh, they did not go into uh, the uh, uh, Taiwan airspace, but they uh, flew over areas which are very close to Taiwan, mm -hmm. and uh, sent a very, very stark message to the Taiwanese. And the president of China, President Xi, made a very, very strong statement. He didn't say that China was going to attack Taiwan, but he did indicate that um, he was, uh, shall we say, turning on the pressure to get the Taiwanese to uh, cooperate, uh, and uh, certainly to warn them that if not, uh, Taiwan might uh, have to take... Um, military steps to uh, restore the sovereignty of China on Taiwan. And this is going to be a test for all the countries in Southeast Asia, but it's also going to be a test of uh, how uh, the Chinese-American confrontation will emerge during and after such an event. Now, when we talk about confrontation <coughs> between the United States and China and growing tensions between the two, As uh, Israelis, we are immediately reminded of stories that have been published in recent years about, uh, first of all, the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and now also the Biden administration putting pressure on Israel to limit Chinese economic activity in Israel and uh, the Americans complaining about contracts that we're giving to Chinese companies that also touch on national security issues. So now with these tensions rising, do you think we're going to see more pressure like that from the United States? And how should Israel respond to it? Well, here again, by coincidence or not by coincidence, I was one of the first Israelis to come out publicly and to warn against uh, the um, intervention and the entry of the Chinese into uh, very serious areas of Israeli economic and uh, economic-related activities. Uh, Why? Because I thought that, for instance, if uh, we have a, a major dairy producing company like Tnuva, which produces most of the uh, dairy products and much, if not most, of the uh, meat and poultry products in this country, that it should suddenly become owned by one of the hundred uh, mega companies in China, which are governmental companies, I thought that it was wrong policy-wise that such a uh, company should be owned as a public company by the Chinese. I also thought, for instance, that there were other elements like the insurance business in which the Chinese try to uh, get in. And so far, by the way, they have not succeeded. But uh, there was a time when it was not a foregone conclusion uh, that the Chinese would not start owning uh, major uh, insurance companies in this country. And uh, there are many uh, Chinese workers in this country, especially in the uh, construction field, and they're involved in uh, constructing uh, railroads here and uh, constructing other elements which are part of the strategic uh, infrastructure of Israel. And uh, this was uh, not an area which was regulated in any way. It's my understanding, it's my uh, guess that there, this has uh, changed somewhat, but it took a lot of uh, pressure to get this changed. 
The United States exerted pressure on this, especially concerning uh, the uh, construction of ports, including yes, Haifa. Port, the Haifa port, yes. yes. And uh, the former prime minister did not prevent this from happening. And uh, indeed, by the way, the Trump administration uh, took measures to uh, alert the position of the United States on this. Mr. Pompeo, who was uh, already at that time Secretary of State, once made a special visit to Israel to impress upon Prime Minister Netanyahu the importance and the key uh, significance of uh, this uh, particular project. But, but you know, the, the people who hold an opposite view on this, they say, well, we need the best uh, bid possible for these large projects. It's important for the economy. Uh, th- these are projects that are important for the development of uh, strategic priorities for the country. So if the Chinese can do it well, why should we capitulate to American demands on this one? The United States has a, uh, not only an economic interest in the Middle East, it also has a uh, strategic interest in the Middle East. And you cannot be the recipient of uh, $38 billion worth of military uh, aid over 10 years, which was granted by President Obama, to uh, the uh, fact that United States interests have to be taken into consideration. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Israel dragged its feet on this uh, many, many times. I thought this was a mistake, and I said so. There were those who intimated that I had uh, probably uh, lost a few marbles in my brain at that time, which... uh, I don't think happened, but at least uh, if I didn't uh, lose some marbles, I've retrieved them all by now, I think. <laughs> well, Ho- espe- hopefully, hopefully yes. certainly for today's interview. Hopefully, certainly for today's interview. Thank you for the compliments. And I think that uh, these matters are being taken into account. And there was a, a distinct uh, refusal on the part of the previous administration to allow this kind of argumentation to be uh, made. But I think today... Uh, people uh, are more uh, attuned to this. Mm -hmm. We're almost out of time. Um, I do want to ask you on something completely in a different uh, arena. You were also very involved at the time in the secret talks between Israel and Jordan that later paved the way for the peace agreement. And uh, we are marking the anniversary of that agreement in two weeks. Do you see potential for this kind of breakthrough to happen today with other countries in the region, maybe Saudi Arabia, who has not yet joined the Abraham Accords? And what needs to happen, if at all, on the Palestinian front for us to reach that moment? Well, uh, I'll say this, uh, since we don't have all that much time. Uh, First of all, um, we ultimately uh, were able to uh, get a peace treaty with the Jordan, just as we have a peace treaty with Egypt, and we set up diplomatic relations. The Abrahamic Accords are not peace accords. We were never at war with the Gulf. True. I was in the Gulf, as I said, over 50 years ago. We were not in a state of war. So the question is whether uh, there can be peace between other countries and us, yes. If there can be an accommodation, yes. When it comes to the Palestinians, this is a more serious matter. And our major problem is, despite our uh, internal division over this, the country is split down the middle uh, on the basics of this. Uh, There are two uh, uh, opposite positions concerning whether they should, uh, statehood should be granted to the Palestinians or not. And uh, the previous uh, government uh, was against it. The 
current government is made up of a coalition of parties, some of who are uh, advocating it and some who are against it. But they got together for different reasons, which is in itself uh, an interesting phenomenon. Unfortunately, I think we now have reached the point where the Palestinians have to make a very grave decision as to how they conduct their future. Can they get their act together? Can they uh, heal the wound between the Hamas and Fatah? I don't know. At the present, it doesn't seem so. And uh, if you ask me, is there any chance of doing business with the Hamas ultimately, I think, yes, I have said in the past that I am an advocate of trying to begin a dialogue with the Hamas. And the Hamas uh, didn't come up to the final uh, line of recognizing Israel. But in the past, it has said that they were willing to accept the uh, 67 borders as the provisional borders of the Palestinian state. If you say so, what you're saying is that this is a defective recognition of Israel. And now, once you reach that point, you're in a different area and you have a different language. That, I think, is something which is doable if the people involved have the creativity to try and get it to happen. Well, that could be a fascinating subject for our next meeting. Uh, Ephraim Alevi, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you to Aaron Ehrlich, our producer, and most of all to you listeners. We'll be back again with another episode of Haaretz Weekend on Friday. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.